If you'll turn with me to uh, Daniel chapter 2, we're starting in verse 25. If you're following along in your pew Bibles, that is on page 501. Again, Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I found a man with the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king, and he said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you, on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as, but as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its, from, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are his head of gold, this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes of part, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes and the feet were partially of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break into, in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, 
the Lord of kings and the revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for revealing truth to us that we can apply to our lives. God, help us to have open ears and open hearts and tender hearts that we may apply with our hands what we learn today. And we just love you and thank you and praise you and help us bring honor and glory to your name. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good to see you this morning. I'm Chris, one of the pastors here. Our lead pastor is on vacation. I, I so appreciate Pastor Bruce arranging his vacation so I could teach the longest chapter in Daniel in one sermon. As I studied other men, no one preaches this in one sermon. So uh, settle in, don't get too comfortable, and let's get after it. So here's the question. What does the future hold? Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Presidents enter the White House, presidents leave the White House. Some don't leave soon enough, some you wish never entered. The future, though, seems more foreboding than ever. Fear is literally in the air. People are troubled, they're anxious, and even alarmed about what's going to happen next. Do you agree? And success and wealth and power, which we as Americans have a lot of, doesn't seem to calm our fears. If anything, success can increase our fears in uncertain times and when our thoughts go to the future. What's going to happen to my success? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my family in the future? Will I be thrown into jail for my beliefs? Will I be sued for putting my convictions into practice as we have seen that played out in this past week? Where is America headed? What is Russia and China going to do next? Will North Korea and Iran be controlled before there is a nuclear breakout? And what about the starvation and genocide that is taking place in Nigeria and Syria? These are real issues that raise grave concerns. Maybe the better question this morning is not, what does the future hold, but who holds the future, and does he or she know what they are doing? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar could relate and identify with most of the questions that we have right here, right now, in our room, even though he lived thousands and thousands of years ago. In Daniel 2, we find him in trouble, or find him troubled by questions and dreams about the future. He's in his second full year as king over Babylon, and as Kevin read, he's king over all the earth. It's, it, it, it's the greatest power and the greatest uh, uh, kingdom and empire of that day. He has conquered the people of Judah, the people of God. And he has found some of his captives to be ten times wiser than the rest of his counselors. That's where we left Daniel and his friends at the end of chapter 1 last week. His kingdom and success seem secure, 
but he is still fearful about the future and troubled by a most disturbing dream about the future from one of his gods, or so he thinks. And here is what we're going to learn from Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 about thriving in Babylon. Here's what we're going to learn from this chapter. Thriving in the last days has as much to do with knowing history's destiny as it does with making personal decisions. We can all relate to Daniel chapter 1. Personal decisions, personal convictions. But Daniel 2 can be overwhelming, believe me. But knowing history's destiny has as much to do with thriving and being a witness for God in our present Babylon as making personal decisions. And I just want, I have in your notes, I pulled together some of the key verses from this passage. So look with me, Daniel 2.28 and Daniel 44 through 45. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known what will take place in the latter days. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So here's the big question for Daniel chapter 2 and for our message this morning. History's destiny, will it be a dream come true or will it be a never-ending nightmare? So I've got four truths that are going to answer that question from this passage, and here's the first. History's destiny is distressing to those who don't know God. It's distressing. In other words, history's destiny appears to be a nightmare to those who don't know God. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, repeated dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, the wise guys, to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Now I see in here two reasons why history's destiny is distressing to those who don't know God. The first is this, not knowing what the future holds is especially alarming to those who don't know the one who holds the future. Not knowing what the future holds is alarming to those who don't know the one who really holds the future. In Daniel 2.29, in Daniel uh, verse 29, tells us that the king was lying on his bed and wondering about the future. Daniel says, As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And then he drifts off to sleep, and then repeatedly in his dreams, he gets a dream from the gods that is greatly disturbing to him. God revealed to the king what would take place in the future through these repeated dreams. Now, you say, well, he found out. Why was he still bothered? Well, the only thing worse than not knowing 
what the future holds is God revealing it to you and not in you not understanding it, okay? So, hey, here's what's going to happen. Yeah, but you're blowing my mind. I'm not sure what this means. This dream, as we look at verses 1 through 3, left Nebuchadnezzar fearful. He said, it, the, the text says he was troubled. That means to, to be so bothered, so disturbed, so anxious about the future or, 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 or something that's happened to you that it leaves you sleepless and even speechless. So terrible, I can't sleep and I can't talk about it. He was fearful. He was also fretful. He was troubled in spirit. He was nervous. He was worried. He was filled in with anxiety. And coupled with that, he was frustrated. I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand it. Look, I know what the future holds. I just don't understand now what it means. It's as though Nebuchadnezzar is saying, the future is scary, and I don't know what it means. I can't understand what's going to happen and where it will lead and what it means for me personally and for all that I rule over and all that I care about. Can you relate to that? Now, we've all had nightmares. How many of you had nightmares? We've all had nightmares. Yeah, we've all had nightmares. I did reading The Lord of the Rings in high school. I made the mistake of reading that before I would go to bed. And then one day, especially when we're in the, the part where they're in the land of Mordor, and darkness, and, and Tolkien can write in such a way that you can sense evil, I woke up in the middle of the night, and all is dark around me. And I'm, I'm like trying to figure out where I'm at, and, and, and it's closing in on me, and I am convinced that the ring wraths have gotten me. And what had happened is I had got turned around in my bed, and my head was at the end of the bed under the covers. So, I mean, I couldn't escape. I mean, it was, it was horrible. But... There's more that's going on here than just a nightmare that you wake up, you laugh at, you figure it out, and you move on. The Babylonians believed that the dreams like Nebuchadnezzar had were omens. They were messages from the gods and were often divine warnings about impending crisis and doom. Consequently, these oriental kings would hire and surround themselves with all sorts of wise men and experts in dream interpretation. Hey, when I get one of these, I want you to tell me what it means. Therefore, in verses 2 and 3, we see four categories of these type of experts. Magicians, who were seers. Conjurers, who were spellcasters. Sorcerers, who dabbled in witchcraft. And the Chaldeans, who were especially good at stargazing and astrology. Now, here's what's interesting. All of these four categories are still exist today, and they're still sought out by people who are worried about the future. And I, I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, true believers would have no need to seek out, much less pay, for these kinds of services. So why was Nebuchadnezzar so fearful, so fretful, so frustrated? Well, he had just become king. And his initial, initial year, we know from history, was difficult. And now his thoughts turned to the future of himself and his kingdom. And he did not want any dreams that would oppose his reign. After all, in this dream, a gigantic, glorious statue of a man ends with being crushed into nothingness by a large rock cut out of a mountain without human hands that grows and fills the earth. Now there's a second reason why 
the future is especially distressing to those who don't know God, and it's this. Worldly wisdom is powerless to predict the future, much less guarantee its fulfillment. Worldly wisdom is powerless. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar finds in verses 4 through 6. Our story continues. Then the Chaldeans, who were like the specialist, the wisest of the wise guys, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, which was the language of Babylon. O oh, king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap, a garbage heap, a dung pile. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. You talk about the carrot and the stick. I mean, you know, I'm wanting that carrot really bad because that stick sounds really bad. Because when he says tear from limb to limb, he's not kidding. He's talking literal. These guys were brutal, and as we're going to find in the chapters to come, it was nothing for him to roast people alive like human marshmallows. It was nothing for him to turn people into lion chow, as he's going to try to do with Daniel. He's saying, look, I want the content and I want the meaning, or else. And the worldly wise men are in a panic as you read through this part. Three times they try to tell him how irrational and impossible his demand is without offending him. But the king is not having any of it. He accuses them of stalling for time and tells them flat out that he no longer trusts their character or their capabilities. Look at verse 7. They answered a second time and said, Lord, let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. Well, I would too. Inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me. Until the situation is changed, in other words, stalling for time, therefore tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Now, the bottom line and the key is given to us in verses 10 and 11. These men may not have been wise enough to know the future. They may not have been powerful enough to guarantee its fulfillment but they were an honest enough to say this in verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Wow. History's destiny is distressing to the unbeliever because worldly wisdom is powerless to predict the future, much less guarantee its fulfillment. 
And so what does the world do when it's faced with a crisis that reveals its utter foolishness, its utter weakness, and exposes its insecurity? It often reacts with anger, rage, injustice, and brutality. Verse 12, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. So there you go. Bad news for those who are far from God. History's destiny is a distressing nightmare that cannot be understood. But there's good news, because there is a God in heaven. There is a God who speaks to those who are in, live in mortal flesh. And the good news is that that God condescends and speaks directly to people about what the future holds and what it means. So the second point I want you to see is this. History's destiny is disclosed to those who know their God. History's destiny is disclosed to those who know their God. Look at verses 14 through 19. When the executioner came to Daniel and said, hey, it's your time to die, then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he should give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And so they did that. Then the mystery, they prayed, and then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Boy, wouldn't you? Right? I would. Now, here's what we see in those verses. Those people who know their God have three heavenly resources for knowing history's destiny, for knowing what God intends for the future. And the first thing that we see is wisdom's perception. The first thing that we see in verse 14 is that Daniel responds with discretion and discernment. Some texts say tact and prudence. In other words, he doesn't overreact. He doesn't plan a boycott. He doesn't plan a revolution. He doesn't fight his way out of there like an action hero. What he does is he responds with wise counsel. He has wisdom's perception, wisdom's perspective. He asks for time to seek God's help because here's the deal. As God's people, we have access to wisdom from above that the world does not have. And James chapter 1, 5 tells us that wisdom from above can be sought through prayer. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, 
and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the man, that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, unstable in all his ways. These four men knew their God, and they sought their God, and they sought wisdom from God, and they didn't gut react, they didn't jump and panic, they sought wisdom from their God. Listen, we're never going to thrive in Babylon without a lot of time spent in prayer, especially prayer asking for wisdom from above. We need God's wisdom, not the words of men, not the reactions of our flesh, but we need divine perspective because as we see, he's the one that is control. We're going to see throughout this story of Daniel and his friends that prayer can get you into trouble with secular authorities, but prayer can get you out of trouble. But what is consistent is pray, pray, pray. And that's the second resource, prayer's communication. If we want to know what's happening, we need to talk to the one who knows. And so these men go to their knees. And James 5.16 again helps us. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I love this. He says, let's pray. And then it's revealed. I mean, he's not like beating himself. He's not trying to earn God's favor. He's not trying to get God's attention. He says, God, you, you know what's going on. We need wisdom. And God said, guess what? I like to do that. And he gave it. He gave it. Do you realize God answers prayer? Amen? And this is even more significant. He uses prayer to accomplish his sovereign purposes in history. Now, he doesn't have to do that. He can, he doesn't even have to snap his fingers. He can speak. He can think. And history will be laid out. But he chooses, in his sovereign purposes, to use prayer. And that's going to be the main message of Daniel chapter 9. If you want to see a glorious, laid out revelation of that, read Daniel 9. God is sovereign, and in his wisdom and power, he chooses to use prayers to fulfill history's destiny. Why? Because that's the kind of God he is, and that's the third resource for understanding history's destiny, God's heavenly reputation. God's reputation. Man, verses 20 through 23, you want to have a praise service, you want to have some theology, you want to explore the goodness and the glory of God, you look at verses 20 through 23, but here's all I can give you today. Three observations. He starts by saying, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. He's saying, look, God's got a reputation, and his character matches that reputation. And he has a character and a reputation that will help us with three observations. Just listen to these. You can jot them down if you want. They're not in your notes. First of all, God's wisdom and power belongs to him alone, and he grants them to whomever he wishes. Okay, that's verses 20 and 21. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Period. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. 
He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Whatever measure of power or wisdom that you and I have today that we exerted this week, that we're going to exert this next week, we have been given it to us by Almighty God. We're like the Blue Brothers. We're talent on loan from God. It's all from Him. See, God is all sovereign over the destiny of history. He's got the epochs and the seasons. He's all powerful over the authority of kings. He puts them up and he puts them down. He is all knowing about the availability of wisdom. He gives it to whomever he wishes. And here's the good news. God is gracious and compassionate to reveal to people what only he can know, understand, and fulfill. Isn't that wonderful? Remember what these guys asked for in verse 18? Let's ask and see if God will be compassionate on us. God is gracious. He knows what's coming, and he condescends to let us in on it. If we know him, if we know him. And then thirdly, God answers the prayers of those who know him and praise him for his glory and his goodness. Look at verses 22 and 23. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we have requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Yes, it's good news this morning. There is a God in heaven. And he lets those, he declares and discloses, he discloses to those who know him what the future will hold. So, we've got bad news for those who don't know the Lord. We have good news for those who know Him. And here's the third point. History's destiny is declared by those who know their God to those who don't know God. History's destiny is to be declared by those who know their God to those who don't know their God. Look at verses 24 through 30. Don't miss this. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, with whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence. Hey, what's the big deal about going into the king's presence when you've been in the presence of the king of kings? Do you see that? Isn't that beautiful? He says, take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. I mean, don't, I mean, there's suck-ups in every age, okay? I mean, this guy, you know, he had nothing to do with this, but he's like, the king's mad, he's killing people. Hey, I solved your problem. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dreams which I have seen and its interpretations? And I love Daniel's humble, godly answer. David answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise man, conjurer, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare. Don't mistake me for one of your wise guys. However, there is a God in heaven 
who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days, the end days, the, the end times of prophecy. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Wow. Okay, so here's what happens here. God discloses it to Daniel, but Daniel is faithful to declare it to those who don't know their God, who don't know the one true God. So let me give you two practical reminders about declaring history's destiny to those who don't know God. Two practical reminders. First is this. God reveals history's destiny so we can declare it to those who don't know God, who don't know the God of dreams and destinies. God discloses the future for us, not so that we can make charts and predict when Christ is coming back and re-predict and predict again. He doesn't give it to us to satisfy our curiosity. He doesn't do it so that we can guess which president is the Antichrist. He doesn't give it to us for any of that. He gives it to us so we can declare it to those who are distressed. Amen? It's meant to be declared. God wants us to declare to those who don't know the God of dreams and destinies. Why did God disturb Nebuchadnezzar with a dream in the first place? God's the one that did it. And why did he disclose it to the meaning of it and the content of it to Daniel when he prayed? Well, first of all, to prevent all people from being crushed by the coming kingdom. He did it because God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He did it because he cared about a wicked, brutal, godless king who had even defeated his own people and taken them captive. You see, from Daniel 2 to Daniel 7, the whole book is written in Aramaic, the language of Babylon. Why? Because God wants the nations to know what's coming. There is a rock that's coming, and it will crush you. It will crush you to nothingness. I have compassion. Though you reject me, rebel against me, and distort and have exchanged my glory for the glory of idols and worship and, and false worship, I still care about you. And two, God wanted to protect his people, even in Babylon. Even in distressing days, God wants to protect his people. And so that's why, he prepared, that's why he reveals it. Secondly, God reveals history destiny so we can explain it with simple clarity. Now, here we come to the fun part. Here we come to what should be next week's message. The content of the dream declared. The content of the dream declared with simple clarity. Let's see if I can do that. First of all, let me summarize verses 31 through 35 in this way. A single great and glorious statue of a man with a rock striking its feet that crushes it to dust and then grows into a great mountain that fills the entire earth. I want you to see a video of someone's representation. This was a vision. It was visual. Let's look at that and let's see the dream as it's played out.
I mean, that's just, that's just amazing. That's what he saw. Now, what does that mean? That's the content. But what is the meaning of the dream? Well, in your uh, notes, uh, in your bulletin, you have a neon insert that kind of gives you the overlay. And we can't go into all of that detail. And to be honest with you, Daniel doesn't go into that de detail. In fact, he only identifies and focuses on the first kingdom and the rock that grows into the great eternal kingdom of God. But as you can see, this statue and its head, its chest, its thighs, its legs, its feet and toes mixed of clay and iron, and even the crushing stone, are kings and kingdoms that take us through history's destiny from the time of Babylon all the way into the future to the time of the Antichrist and the second coming of Jesus Christ with his kingdom. Let me just make seven quick observations about the makeup of the statue. First, its size is huge and impressive and awe-inspiring. The kingdoms of the earth, no doubt, are impressive. Secondly, the value decreases from gold to iron to iron mixed with clay. The kingdoms of this world are decreasing in their value and their worth. Third, the strength increases from gold to iron. Iron is one of the or gold is one of the softest metal, iron one of the hardest. So the value goes down as its might and strength and abuse of the world's kingdom increases. The weight decreases from gold to iron. I didn't know this. That's very interesting. That makes the kingdoms of the world top-heavy and unstable. The foundation is weakened even further by the feet being a mixture of iron and clay that doesn't adhere. And the ten toes we'll see later in Daniel represent ten kingdoms. And so there's division and instability in the end of the Antichrist's kingdom. Six, the rock from heaven is cut without hands. That means it's divine. The king is divine. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see in the fulfillment of the New Testament. And it strikes the statue. And it strikes at the feet. It hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen at the first coming yet. It will happen at the second coming when the feet and the kingdom and the Antichrist kingdom is. And when it does, when it strikes that feet, the whole kingdoms of the world, they're done and they come into utter nothingness. The rock then grows to become a great mountain that fills the whole earth because God's kingdom, when it comes, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will be eternal, it will be universal, and it will be permanent. And so the meaning of this is simply this. The meaning of the dream explained. This is all. This is all Daniel wants us to get. This right now. This is all that Nebuchadnezzar needed to hear. And I would put forth to you, if you're worried and anxious and concerned, this is all you need to know. That history's destiny is the coming of God's eternal kingdom to crush all rival kingdoms to dust. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And if you're a Turner Classic movie fan, like my daughter and me, you could put it this way. History's destiny is that, king, that my kingdom will come, and all earthly kings and kingdoms will be gone with the wind. Dana, you're probably a classic rock person, right? I was classic rock. I listened to classic rock before it was classic. It was contemporary. 
when I listen to it. History's destiny is that my kingdom will come and all earthly kings and kingdoms will be nothing but dust in the wind. That's the point. Now, this is good news to all peoples. God in His grace has this written in Aramaic, the universal language at that time of this pagan king. He has delivered this dream to a pagan king. God wants all peoples to repent before it's too late. Amen? But to enter this kingdom, one will have to bend the knee to God's chosen rock, to His chosen ruler, to his Jewish Messiah, which we know to be that Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what does all this mean for us as we try to thrive in our own Babylon, which is America? It means this, and here's the fourth point. History's destiny will be a dream come true for those who know their God. And it will be a never-ending nightmare for those who do not know the one true God. Wow. In verses 46 through 49, we see what happens. Let me just give you three points of application. And it's all centered on that rock. The rock that is our refuge. The rock that is our redeemer. The rock who is our coming, reigning, ruling king. The rock who will bring with him wrath and eternal judgment for all those who do not know the one true God and who refuse to bow the knee to his son and his king. So here's the first point. Humble yourself before that saving rock. Humble yourself before that saving rock that is able to save all peoples. I think it's beautiful that when you come to the New Testament and you come to the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the Spirit comes down, here's what Peter preaches in Acts 4, 11 through 12. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the saving rock. And before he comes to rule and to judge and to crush into nothingness, he came and was crushed for your sin and he was crushed for my sin, and he suffered and was rejected, and the sins of the world were heaped upon him, and he looked out upon Jew and Gentile alike and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, but that forgiveness cannot be yours today unless you acknowledge, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I need the rock to crush my sin so that I won't be crushed when his kingdom comes. Jesus is the rock, the stone that was rejected. Man, there's so much I could give you. In fact, here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 20. He tells a parable and he says this. He quotes that same passage and Jesus looked at them and said, What then is it that is written? 
The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And then Jesus said this, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. Dust in the wind. What did Jesus just say there? Fall on him and let the rock break you so that the rock won't fall on you and crush you to dust. Isn't that good? But beware of false humility and false confession of faith. It's interesting and sad that Nebuchadnezzar, after all this, he gives honor, he, he humbles himself before the one true God's servants, he honors the one true God's servants, but he never gives his life to the one true God. You say, how do you know that? Because next week in chapter 3, we're going to see he builds this image and declares all the earth must worship him. And I believe the image was not only the image he saw in his dream, I think it was a reflection of him. So there's false contrition and false humility that we all need to be aware of. Secondly, take heart, Christian, in the strong rock that secures all. Listen, things are getting crazy, and they very well may get crazier. None of us knows what the future holds, but we do know, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, who holds the future. There is a God who heaven who reveals the future and will fulfill the future. And man, I've got so many verses on the rock. You, you, you just need to put rock into your computer software and look up all the beautiful verses in Psalms. He's a refuge. He's a rock. Run to him. Trust in him. He's a, he's a, he is a strong rock that can secure us in the most hostile of cultures. Finally, surrender everything to the sovereign rock. Surrender everything to the sovereign rock that is supreme over all things. I'm going to end with Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Another vision of how this is all going to take place. And here's what it says. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. And here's what all of heaven is saying. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, it's been disclosed. Let's go and declare it. Amen? Let's declare it to those who don't know their God because someone declared it to you. And we need to declare it to them. With your heads bowed, we want to respond to this. And there's a lot of ways to respond. The number one way is to fall on Jesus and let him break you of your sin. Let him break you, let him forgive you, let him rebuild you in righteousness. He will do that for you today. But also, let's recommit to running to the rock of our refuge. And more than anything, let's surrender, as the praise team sings, let's surrender everything to our God and to his coming King. Father, I pray it won't be church as usual it won't be business as usual. It will be surrender to the rock of our salvation. Let's do business with God.